Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. 2022 represents the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and we wanted to look at its origin, talk about what Title IX has done for women's collegiate sports, and what work still needs to be done. Our guest is Dr. Karen Weaver, adjunct assistant professor and academic director at the University of Pennsylvania. So one of the things I like to do on these podcasts is a lot of times there are phrases that are thrown around that I peep think people have a general idea of what they do, but they don't maybe understand the nuts and bolts. And I think Title IX falls under that. For the average person, kind of explain the origin of Title IX and where it came from. So it came from an educational law that was signed into into effect by uh, President Richard Nixon at the time in 1972. Uh, It was championed by Edith Green, Senator Birch Bayh, and Senator Patsy Mink who were strong advocates for better treatment for women in school. A lot of times women at that point weren't even being admitted to colleges, let alone be able to play sports. So everybody first thought this was an educational bill to give them more access to majors and classes in college. Only a year or so later did people really understand that it also included athletics because athletics received federal funds too. And so the universities were like, wait a minute, I thought athletics was separate. And the, and the education department was like, no, this is actually part of what we fund you to do is provide equitable opportunities to all of your students. So that was the genesis of it. But here we are 50 years later, and we're still, still trying to define it. Where would you say the most progress has been made? Where are there, where are there aspects of women's sports that you go we, we've got this right. We've, we've, we've done this the right way. Well, I think for years, the, the sense was that women athletes really weren't going to go pro in something, go pro. They were to go do something else. And so there was this sense that women's athletics had the balance right. Um, but as the expectations grew to win, I certainly think coaches like Pat Summit and Gino Ariema set standards of winning in women's sports that uh, presidents enjoyed, fans enjoyed. And so all of a sudden, the spotlight got a little bit brighter. Uh, I don't know that it's there yet for many other women's sports, but I could certainly argue that softball has moved in that direction. I think volleyball has moved in that direction. Um, women's swimming has gotten a lot of attention this year, but they have some really high-level swimmers that are still swimming in college that compete for us at the U.S. Olympic level. So we've gone from one step above high school to really looking at the development of the female athlete as someone who needs to reach her potential, not just in college, but after that. And I think that's what's been the change. It seems to me that one of the interesting things about this is that we've seen in the last few years, I feel like a, a, an explosion of women's sports on television and there was always the argument, well, the interest isn't there and that's why they're not on TV. But now you're seeing events put on TV and they're drawing a lot of eyeballs. And I just find it interesting that really smart people who understand how this stuff works 
were so slow in coming around to there would be an obvious audience for high-level women's athletics? Well, we could put part of the blame on the way the NCAA structured its, its television packages, right? Because basically they viewed for the last 40 years the men's tournament as the cash cow for the entire organization, <clears throat> giving little to no value to the women's sports or even the men's uh, minor sports or non-revenue sports. And so all their energies were tied into that. So their blinders were on. They didn't really understand that possibly their women's basketball tournament could be marketed separately, signed to a separate television deal. But then two other factors happened. One was the fact that we had a pandemic and we were able to compare so clearly what was going on in the men's and women's basketball tournament last year and see the inequities for our own eyes. But secondly, a lot of the women athletes at the professional level started standing up for social justice causes. Black Lives Matter. They got involved in, in Senate races in various states. The athletes weren't afraid to speak up. And I think that has trickled down to an audience that is looking for that kind of um, outspokenness. You don't see too many male athletes speaking out. They worry about their brand, their collective bargaining agreements, their impact on the organization they play for. There's more of a corporatized feel, but still around women's athletics. There's this sense of you can have a bit of a personality. You can have a bit of a, a, a sense of sharing who you are and what you stand for. And I think that the technology has evolved since then. We, you know, Matt, you're a media guy. There's more platforms than ever that desperately want content. So good competitive content that draws eyeballs, like the North Carolina State UConn game this week that drew 2 million viewers on a Monday night was phenomenal. And that's exactly the kind of thing that then attracts, of course, advertisers and corporate partners. How much it's interesting. You sent me a, a link to a story and we're talking 50th year of Title IX. So we're going back to 72, 72, 73, 74. You mentioned kind of that first year people didn't put the pieces together, but that's the during the run of the Mighty Max at Immaculata. Now it's AIAW then. It's not NCAA yet, but Maybe the first time that team women's sports are elevated to where they become a national phenomenon. How big was that team, that team's success in helping to uh, move the needle for women's sports just as Title IX is getting established across the board? Well, you know how everybody loves a good story, right? And, and they were just a terrific story. Here they were selling toothbrushes to pay for plane tickets to be able to go to the national tournament. They didn't even have enough to take the whole team. They took the coach, bought her own, and everybody else sort of flew standby. And as the media kind of caught on to this small Catholic school who had this passionate uh, following, including nuns who were banging buckets during the game, it just became a great storyline. And then they won. They weren't like the number one seed. They were like the 16th seed. So they were the St. Peter's of 1972. And then they did it again in 73. And they did it again in 74. And I think it's important for listeners to also recognize that Westchester was just as good during that period of time. They had a head coach, Carol Ekman, who literally founded the Women's Basketball Championship. So those two schools became intense rivals because of their competitive nature of their coaches, but also how close they were. And, um, you know, to this day, 
Kathy Rush gets tremendous pretend, uh, recognition for, you know, developing those teams and developing so many players that turn into great coaches and great, you know, um, contributors to society. But Westchester had great teams, too. And the Philadelphia area really started with good basketball. And you can give a lot of credit to the CYO leagues of developing, you know, non-gendered players. They, they let girls play basketball and boys play basketball. And I think that says a lot about Title IX. How much do you think just having the timing of that, having that run happen those first three years, you know, how much did that help accelerate those early years that it forced people to take note and understand what the what the possibilities were? I think it was very important. And I think the fact that folks like Carol Ekman and others who were strong advocates for Title IX and AIEW leaders were smart about trying to get the national tournament into bigger arenas. And so they invited the Delta states of the world. They invited the uh, where Carol Blasiowski played in, in North Jersey, uh, different different places where players were making names for themselves and took them to New York and took them to Chicago and said, come see this, this activity. They understood promotion. And it was getting so competitive that actually when ESPN launched in 1979, 1980, they actually gave the AIEW a contract for $1 million to broadcast their women's basketball tournaments. Not a lot of people know that, but that was one of the reasons that the NCAA started getting worried because all of a sudden they were gonna have a competing organization that was gonna start to take television dollars away from their organization. So it shows you that early on, you know, uh, facility promoters, sports promoters, marketers, television folks said people like to watch this and this is exciting. We talked about progress. Where is there still a lot of work to be done? And I don't want to phrase that question like uh, we've hit the top of the mountain in certain areas. There's always can be better. But are there certain areas where even 50 years into Title IX with regards to women's sports, we're still woefully deficient? Yeah, I think and I would take this across across all of athletics. But I think right now the fact that college athletics is a 24-7, 365 a year job. For, for staffs and coaches is, is a killer. Coming out of this pandemic and with the great resignation happening around all of us, I do worry about whether we ought to have more guardrails on time off for our coaches, our student athletes, our athletic trainers, our facilities folks, because you just can't keep up that pace. And we're going to lose good people. I said to somebody this morning, how many more Tara Vanderveers are going to come up through the next generation? She's been coaching for almost 40 years. I don't think we're going to see that again. And so I don't want to lose good people because we can't get a handle on controlling our, our work-life balance. I saw several uh, NFL coaches say they never want to go back to college again because in the NFL, they have mandated time off. They have mandated time where they can't do any work. And that's really important for their health and their family life and everything else. And I think we need to do that. Um, I think in women's athletics, we really have to recognize the economic potential across so many sports. Lacrosse is huge. I mean, lacrosse is a sport that could really, really take off. And Athletes United, which is a professional sport organization, has embraced women's lacrosse. As I mentioned, softball is gaining in popularity. And kudos to um, former VP at ESPN, Carol Stiff, for recognizing that softball really had potential. People watch it. 
And so I think what we have to do is get, and I'm going to put myself in this, our old guard or our old heads to realize that the game has changed and they have to start thinking about it a little bit differently. And that's going to be the hardest not to crack. We are having a moment now where there's a lot of discussion about transgender athletes and we're seeing a lot of discussion much of it bad faith and in poor taste how important is it to recognize this moment when you're talking about the the fight for equality well that's just what it is i mean one one of the things i say to my students when i talk about title nine is simply saying look look at an athletics program would one gender accept the other gender's competitive opportunities and situation. And usually the women will say, oh yeah, for sure, I'll accept what the men get. But the men will say, ah, maybe not. And that's when it sort of hits them. I think that that's where transgender folks are at right now, is that if they're welcomed as the Harvard swimmer was, and there's no sense of, we set these structures up incorrectly, so therefore the athlete's gonna be penalized. That's fine, but that's exactly what happened to Leah Thomas. The NCAA as an organization was ill-prepared to deal with this, ill-prepared. Their um, research was out of date. Uh, So much had evolved in the 10 years since they had set the rule. And um, uh, Leah and her teammates became the, the brunt of all of this. But I think we know one thing. I think we know that we can't look at sport anymore just as a male and female, one or the other kind of proposition. So many people want to embrace sport. And we need to find opportunities for them to do that. I feel like and we talked about with the TV and maybe it's just because the exposure level has skyrocketed. But it almost feels to me like the last 10 years or so, we've seen as much growth and equity as we saw the first 40 years. Is that am I skewed just by what I'm seeing on TV or do you think the the progress is really come a long way for women in the last decade? I would say that it's actually been in the last five years. I'm not sure there's been that much in the last 10, but I would say it parallels the growth in technology and platforms. I mean, certainly it's just the search for content. And this is compelling content. There's a lot of equity and parity amongst some of the top teams. Both genders in basketball go pretty deep in terms of who can beat who. And I think that was the criticism for a long time on the women's side is that there weren't that many really good teams. There were a few, but not many. Now we're getting more and more good teams. And I think that makes for compelling watching. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.